Um, we're in Acts chapter 19 this morning. We've been going through the book of Acts. If you're visiting with us, we've been going through the book of Acts together, and we're looking at the start of Christianity, the start of the church, really the beginnings of our uh, Christian faith. Um, this was after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, um, before he ascended, he left his disciples with a command. They were to make other disciples. Jesus told them uh, before he ascended that he would send the Holy Spirit. He would be leaving them, but he would send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would come with great power. And when the Spirit came with power, they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what we have seen is that, like the book of Acts unfolds sort of in, in that direction. The Holy Spirit did come. Jesus ascended uh, to heaven where he is now until he returns, uh, and he sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came with great power, and when he did, uh, the empowered disciples became missionaries, and uh, they became his witnesses. And the, the book of Acts unfolds in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and where we are now in the study of Acts is to the ends of the earth, um, pressing outward from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So, um, Acts 19, we are looking at verses 21 through 41 this week. Paul is in Ephesus um, and we talked last week about the presence of the Holy Spirit with him there in Ephesus with them in an amazing way. I described it sort of as Pentecost 3 because of all the amazing things that were going on um, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so the gospel has come to Ephesus with this power of the Spirit. What we talked about last week is how individual lives were completely changed as the gospel came, transformed. People were transformed by the gospel message and their faith in Jesus. So this morning we're going to pick up there and we're going to see something even more incredible. We talked about how incredible this was. People were um, throwing their idols down. They were burning these um, books of, of magic. They were leaving their old life and they were following Jesus. Families changed, individuals changed. This morning, we talk about something even more incredible, and that is an entire culture of a city and an area changed by the gospel. So I want us to pray together this morning, and I want to say, I want to say two things up front. Hear me on these two things. First is, I don't think we believe what we're about to talk about. I don't think that we believe that it's the gospel that transforms culture, um, and I hope that that will become clear as we go through this sermon. Um, pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to believe that. Uh, the other thing that I want to say is um, one, one Sunday morning there were some visitors, and the mom asked their friends, the mom asked one of the older kids, like, so what did you think of the preaching today? They have a church. They were here for another reason. And um, the kids said, that preacher is really intense. Um, I know sometimes I come across that way. And so I want to say this this morning. Uh, this message is a grace of God. And it may not feel that way as we're going through it, but it's God, it's God I truly believe, graciously saying to all of us here, I have something better for you. I have something better for you. So pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be great with us today and that we would believe the message and pray as well that we would receive the message as a gracious message from God. We all do that with me? I'm not convinced. 
at all. Okay, good. It's feeling very alone up here. Let's pray. Father, we come together um, in prayer. Uh, you, you have given us this gracious gift, and, and we, um, we use it now to, to plead with you to be um, extra gracious to us this morning. Holy Spirit, we, we, we pray that you would, would, would help us in our unbelief, that you would help us to believe, that you would soften our hearts this morning to receive this message um, we, we pray together that the message that is received is received as a, as a gift of grace because I believe that's what you intend this morning. I am thankful that you have given us something greater. Help us to see that. Help us to believe it. And change us. Change our city. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, so, Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41, that's where we'll be. We're not going to read all of those verses this morning. We're going to sort of focus in on some verses there, but I do want to tell you the story of these verses this morning. So, we'll start there, just me telling you what happens in this part of the story of Acts. So, as I mentioned, Paul has been in Ephesus, and the church has been growing uh, in Ephesus. There have been incredible miracles going on, casting out uh, demons. Um, people are repenting of their sin, turning away from their um, dark magic and witchcraft. They are repenting of that. They are dropping their idols. They are turning to Jesus, uh, worshiping and following Him. In verses 21 through 22, and we talked about all of that last week. So for this week, in 21 and 22, uh, it starts off by Paul or uh, Luke sharing with us Paul's uh, plans to send Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia. Paul was planning to go to Rome. He was going to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. In 23 through 27, we have some detail, and this is where we're going to focus this morning, but detail on what was happening in, in Ephesus. And what was happening was enough with what we talked about last week, what we'll talk about this week, the entire city was being stirred up. Demetrius is one of the characters, and he gathers the silversmiths and those who made idols in Ephesus, uh, and he stirs them to a riot. Verse 29 tells us that the city was filled with confusion. And in this confusion and this riot, some of Demetrius's people grab some of Paul's people and they drag them off. Um, they're looking for Paul, right? But don't find Paul. So they drag these others off um, to the, the, the theater. And the theater was in the market and it was a place where um, people gathered. And it was also a place where disputes were taken and city leaders would hear disputes. And so they're dragging Paul's men, since they can't find Paul, to the city leaders and they are making accusations against them. Huge crowd has gathered. It's, it's a riot. It's a mob. Um, Alexander the Jew intervenes, and he is trying to calm the crowd. Because he is a Jew, he only incites the crowd. And so they are getting more and more violent and more and more rowdy, getting worked up. For two hours, they are shouting over Alexander. Finally, the town clerk uh, there in Ephesus intervenes and 
What he says essentially is that, that Paul and his crew are not to blame for the problems, but Demetrius is. Um, and, and, and he says, you've, you've worked these people into a riot. There are no real charges against Paul or these people, and Rome is not going to tolerate it. So if you don't break up now, bad things are going to happen. So he sends everybody away. After that, so there, there is calm, at least on the surface, right? It's after that that Paul leaves and he heads over to Macedonia. So that's sort of the big picture of what we see in 21 through 41 this morning. This riot coming, people being stirred up, all of that. Paul escaping, um, chaos, confusion. Uh, it, it's as the gospel has progressed through the book of Acts, this is common. Right, Like the cities get stirred up, there's anger, hostility, riots, Paul ends up having to, to leave. Now here's the thing, it isn't the believers who are causing the problems, right? They're not causing the riots, Paul isn't instigating the chaos and the violence, it's the unbelievers in the city who, who are violent toward the Christian message and toward Christianity. Up until this point, it has been the Jews primarily who have been leading this charge. But now, it's the Gentile unbelievers who, who are rising up against Christianity. So, focus on 23 through 27, and, and what we are going to see is, is the why, why these things were happening. So, let's dig into sort of the story within the story. The gospel changes culture. Right? Last week, we talked about the, the gospel uh, changing, transforming individuals. Here it is the gospel changing culture. Look at verse 23 with me. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, that is Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificent, she whom all Asia and the world worship. All right, so Artemis. Artemis um, to the Romans, Diana, um, one of their many, many gods, but in Ephesus, this was the most prominent of the gods. Um, their worship of, of Artemis was, was known around the world. Uh, they had a huge ornate temple that was built there. Uh, it was seven times larger than the Parthenon. So you've heard of the Parthenon. This temple to Artemis was seven times larger than that. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Now, because of that, people from all over the Greek and Roman world traveled to Ephesus to worship in the great temple of Artemis, to see one of the seven wonders of the world, right, and to worship there. Now, when they did that, they were coming to Ephesus. When they did that, they spent time and they also spent money. They spent a lot of money. Um, they had to have a place to stay. They had to have food to eat. Um, they gave offerings to Artemis while they were there. And they also bought things to take home for, 
from their, from their trip to remember, right? Like if you go to Disney, you, you have to buy mouse ears, right? Has anybody been? Did you buy the mouse ears, right? It's, you, it's, it, you have to do that. Um, but, but here's the thing, like for Disney, this is huge money. It, it's not just a fun thing for them like it is for the people that come. It is huge money. And that's the way it was for them. It's funny, we're talking about this during um, Cherry Blossom. How many of you have been downtown for the last week, right? On a pretty day or a pretty night, it is crazy down there. Can't find a place to park. Everything is full. Everybody's in town for Cherry Blossom. And they're spending their money. They're going to restaurants, going to shops. They're all over the place. That's the way it was here. People would come to Ephesus because of the worship of Artemis, because of this big and beautiful temple that was there. And when they came, they would spend money, not on Mickey Mouse ears, but they would buy shrines and idols, shrines of the temple, idols of Artemis, so that they could take those home with them to remember their trip to Ephesus. Demetrius, who we mentioned, was one of the craftsmen in Ephesus, and he worked with other craftsmen to produce those things that were being sold connected to the worship of Artemis. It was a huge business for them. Demetrius is seeing the negative impact of Christianity already in his city, and he is anticipating an even greater problem with the worship of Jesus in other cities as well. He, he mentions it. You know this is happening in other cities as well. People who believed the message of the gospel were turning away from their other gods and other goddesses, laying down their idols, burning their idols, destroying their idols and pursuing Jesus. So verse 27 again says, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, Demetrius says, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Like people will stop coming here. Right? This is bigger than just the people around us. People will stop coming here. They won't come to see Artemis's temple. And she may even be de deposed, he says, from her place and her magnificence. She whom all of Asia and the world worship. Demetrius was a smart guy. And he was connecting the dots for what was happening in his city with Christians who were living as Christians. And what he sees is, this is already having an impact on our wealth, and it will only grow. Demetrius saw culture changing, and it was changing through those people. So let's look closer at that, right? How, how it was that culture was changing, how the gospel transforms culture. This is the part where I, I said a minute ago, I don't think we believe this. So, so I want us to spend some time here, how the gospel transforms culture. Um, Tim Keller points out here, and I think it's a great observation, that this, this section, this is the only time in our story of Acts so far that chaos and rioting has taken place without a direct connection to a sermon right? Usually somebody preaches and the Jews get offended and angry and they, they cause a riot. In this case, it's not connected to a, a sermon from Paul. Instead, it's connected to, I believe, this changing culture. We do get a glimpse, though, of, of what was happening um, from what Demetrius says. So let me read some of these again. Verse 25. 
These he gathered, the silversmiths um, and the people in that trade, he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from, the, um, from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in, in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying, here's the key, that gods made with hands are not gods. Now this should point us back to Acts chapter 17, um, and, and we should be reminded there of Paul's teaching when he was in Athens. Let me read those verses. In verse 22 of Acts 17, uh, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the many objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, what Paul was doing in Athens, right, the, the short version that we have um, in, in our passage this morning of, of Ephesus, that's what Paul was doing when he was in Athens. I think, I think Paul's doing the same thing with the people that he's talking with. I think he did the same thing in, in Corinth, and he is contextualizing the gospel to them specifically, right? So when he, is, when he is in Athens and he sees that they have this shrine set up to an unknown God, in, in their context, he says, hey, I saw that. You guys are really, really religious people. I saw that you had this shrine set up for the unknown God, like the one that maybe y'all had forgotten about or missed or didn't know. Hey, let me tell you, I know this God, right? He, he begins then to speak to them about the unknown God, their, their context, the, the context of Athens. And what he then does is he shares the big story of God with them, but he does it, right? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, it's all in there. He does that by talking about their unknown God. He does that by contextualizing the gospel message to them, their specific context. And what he is doing is attacking their specific idols. All of these other temples, all of these other little G gods, they are not God at all. But, but I know God, big G God, and, and, and he is not served by, by human hands, and, and, and he doesn't dwell in the temples that you have created. He made the heavens and the earth. He made all of humanity, and he gives all of us life and breath. And it's, it's God. It's God who raises up nations. It's God who brings them down. It's God who gives them a place, and God who gives them boundaries. All of that is my God. And my God, big G God, Paul is saying, unlike your gods, has sent someone to rescue and redeem us, and his name is Jesus. Repent of pursuing these false gods and believe in the one 
true God. Paul was destroying the idols of that culture and pointing people to Jesus, the one true God, His Son who came to redeem them. The people then, believing that gospel, when when Paul proclaimed it, walked away from their idols. And because they loved and followed Jesus, they sought to live as He would have them to live, right? To follow His commands. And when they did that, their culture was changed. It, It was not just a person who was changed, but their change affected the culture. Culture was changed when idols were replaced with Jesus. So if we want to know how it is that the gospel transforms our culture, there is the answer. Culture is transformed when idols are replaced with Jesus. Now, hear me. If that is true, culture is changed when idols are replaced with Jesus, then what does that say of our culture? Let me me say it differently, maybe. Demetrius saw Christianity having a very Christian impact on culture, changing the culture, shaping it in distinctly Christian ways. Could it be that we aren't seeing that in our culture, and and, and in fact, we're seeing the opposite of that? Could it be that we aren't seeing that in our culture because of our own idols? I'm not talking about the idols of the world. I'm talking about the idols of the church. Could it be that we don't see a change in our culture because of our own idolatry? Now, I, I know what some of you are thinking. We don't, we don't have idols, temples. I mean, we're, we're in church today. Why are you talking to us about this? But don't we have idols? An idol doesn't have to be made of gold or silver and isn't always a statue. Again, I'm praying that you receive this as a gracious gift from God. There's something better. An idol is anything that we look to for what only God can fully give. An idol is anything that we pursue for completion and fulfillment that isn't God. An idol is anyone or anything that we love more than Jesus. If you you want to know, and I I want you to know, I want to know, I want us to know so that we can can discover our idols and toss them in the fire. If you want to know what your idols are, ask yourself some questions. I'm going to ask these questions. You, You just, in your mind, answer them honestly. What is that thing in your life that you cannot live without? Maybe it's a person. If you lost it or, 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 or them, if they, if they left you, if you didn't have this thing, then, then you would be lost, you would be miserable, and life would be incomplete. Whatever that thing is, it is an idol. 
Think honestly about this fill-in-the-blank. How would you complete it? If I only had blank, then I would be happy. If I only had blank, then I would be fulfilled. If I only had blank, then I would, I would really be satisfied. Everything would be good. Whatever goes in that blank, that is your idol. That is what you are looking for and pursuing for completion, for fulfillment, for happiness. That is your functional Savior. When I just get fill in the blank, then I can slow down. When, when I just get fill in the blank, then, then I can enjoy life. Then I can relax a little. Then maybe I can spend a little more time with my family. Then when I, when I just get this, when I get to this place, then I can spend a little more time with Jesus. Then I can serve others. Then I can be a part of ministry. Then I can, I can give more. I can do more. When I just get this. Whatever this is, it is an idol. Maybe it's the idol of comfort or security. So you are willing to work harder, to save money, to, to give lef- less of yourself and your resources outside of work just, just for a few more years, right? Just until I get to this place. Because when I get to this place, when I get to this pay, th- then, then I can do those things. Then I will have security. Then I'll have comfort. When I have this much money in the bank, when my 401k is at this place, when all of this is is there, then I will have security. Then I will be comfortable. When I have this house, when I live in this neighborhood, when I when I when I attain this position with my job, when I am in this position of power, when I am in this position of place, whatever it is that makes you feel secure and comfortable, that is your idol. You're spending your life working to attain your idol, and, and, and what you're after is only something that God can give. When you are sad, where do you turn? When you are afraid or, or, or hurt, where do you, where do you go? If it isn't to Jesus, who is your friend, right? Jesus is our friend. If it, if it isn't Jesus, if it isn't, if it isn't God our Father, if it isn't the Holy Spirit who is our comforter, if we run to alcohol or to drugs or to sex or to a person, when we do those things, those are our idols. And the truth is, we, 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 we all have idols, all, all of us, me, and tons of them. We, we profess Jesus, and, and I, I believe that we, we, we do love Jesus, and we, we want to love Jesus. I, I believe that. But still we worship idols like money and love and children and comfort and security and place and status, and power, and on, and on, and on. They are, they are sneaky, these idols. 
a lot of them start out as things that are, are not bad at all. They start out as things that are, are good, right? They start out as things that are good. Working, for example, is good. The Bible tells us that we should work. And, and we should. Working, we were created to work. I, I, I know it's hard to believe, but Adam and Eve, they were created to work as well, right? That's what we were created for. Work is not a bad thing. Work, work is a good thing. Paying bills, good thing. Saving up for the future, not a bad thing at all. Retirement, good thing. All of those are, are not bad things in and of themselves. Taking care of your family, man, I am all about that. Take care of your family. The Lord has given us that responsibility. But this becomes evil when, we, when it's no longer a, a, a tool for doing what God has called us to do. It becomes our pursuit. It becomes the thing that we, we desire, our, our means to an end, rather than God being the means and our job being a gift. It, it, right? It, it, our job is a gift from God, but we stop seeing it that way. And work is no longer, no longer good. We are pursuing independence from God. Longer hours, questionable practices, less time with our, our kids, our spouse, our family. Money becomes the object of our pursuit. There in money we find our, our, our happiness. It is the desire of our heart. It's the place of our comfort and our security and our peace. It becomes the hope of our future. Idolatry. Let me go ahead and hit another one. How about politics? Can we talk about politics? Why not? I, I love in our country that we can vote. I, I love our country when I compare it to a lot of other countries. Man, we are, in, we are really in a great place. I, I love that we can, we can vote. And, and I encourage you in, the, in, in politics to vote and to vote your conscience. Do that. But I also want you to understand that, that your politics will never save you. Ever. I mean, my goodness, how long have we been doing this? We're still not saved. Politics will not save us. It, it is God who is sovereign and mighty and all-powerful. It is God who, as, as Paul said, is not served by human hands or, 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 or ballots in the box. God who created all and sustains all. It is God who raises up nations and God who brings them down. It is God, Paul said, who allots their time. Do you hear me? When our nation crashes, it will not be because of the Republicans. And it will not be because of the Democrats. And it will not be because of the independents. It is God who raises up nations and God who brings them down. It is God who allots their time. So vote. Vote your conscience. Vote your conscience. Go when it's time and vote, but vote by faith, knowing that no matter what happens, your God is mighty. And all of this is in His hands. He is our only hope. He is our only hope, not the idol of politics. 
I'm just going to go through a few more. Love, love is a good thing. We were created for love, right? We really were. God loves us. We were created to love one another. We were created to give love and to receive love. But there is only one love that will ultimately fill your soul. And it is the love of God. Every other love will fail you and fall short. Our desire to be loved is, is a natural desire. Right Where we get messed up is where we start seeking it in the wrong places. The right place is God. That is the place where we are, we are loved. That is the place where we are meant to be loved greater than any other. Our desire to be loved by all the people around us, it leads us to do things that we shouldn't do, and it leads us to not do things that, that, that we should be doing, right? But because we are so afraid that somebody won't love us, so we don't tell them about Jesus. We don't share the gospel with people. We don't tell people about the hope that we have in Jesus because we're afraid of what they might think of us. That, that's, that's our desire to be, to be loved becoming an idol. When, when we won't talk to a brother or sister about sin in their life or something that they are doing that is leading them away from God, when we won't talk to them about those things because we're afraid of how they might think of us, then, then, then we are pursuing love in the wrong place and in the wrong way. Our, our expectation of a fulfilling and satisfying love is unfairly being placed on others when the, when the truth is we are already loved. We are already loved by the creator of the universe, by the God who gives us breath and life. He loves us so much that he sent Jesus. And Jesus loves us so much that he came and suffered and died so we wouldn't have to. Let me hit another big one. Children. Children are good. Most of the time. What I mean there is that children are good in the sense that they are a gift from God. And it is good for us to love and care for our children. It is good. God has told us to do that, to love and care for our children. In fact, the way that we love and care for our children is a picture for our children of the way that God loves us. So it is good for us to love and care for our children. But our children can become our gods as well. And in our culture, I would say this is a really, really big one, that our kids often become our gods. We spend our life and our resources to serve them. Something good, loving and caring for our children becomes an evil when, when, when our pursuit becomes making them happy over making God happy. Do I need to say that one again? Our kids are an idol when we care more about what they think and their happiness than what God thinks and His happiness toward us. When we can't afford to help others or support the mission of God because we spend all that we have making sure that our children have everything that they want, that is idolatry. Our checkbook is for our kids, our home is for our kids, our time is for our kids, doing every sport that they ever wanted to do, being a part of every team that they ever wanted to be a part of. 
All that we have, we give to them and there's nothing left over. Do you see what we've done? We've taken something good as a gift from God and made it an idol. Spending all that we have on them. We could could go on sex, drugs, alcohol, power. Man, over the last couple of years, Georgia football. Listen, I'm not joking. And I love football. If you can tell me all of the players on on the Georgia football team, guys, especially guys, but not limited to, if you can tell me all the players on the Georgia football team and what year they are and what position they play, but you ain't got time to read your Bible, I'm just going to tell you that's idolatry. There is something better for you than Georgia football. I promise you that. Hunting? The truth is, there is no short supply of idols. And here's the thing, they aren't just idols in in our culture, right? A lot of times the church wants to point to the world outside of our doors and, 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 and blame them. Listen, these are our idols, this isn't the world's idols. These are, these are our idols. The idols of professing Christian. The idols of the church. Demetrius was, was worried because a growing number of people were putting down their idols and truly following Jesus. Demetrius would be fine here. People people were being transformed into the image of Jesus. They were seeking to follow him. They They were reaching others, sharing the gospel. And there was this growing number, disciples making disciples, this growing number of of new Christians and people following the Lord. And, And and all of those people were casting down their idols. And culture was changed. It wasn't because of laws, and it wasn't because of politics. It was because of Jesus. So I want, to, I want us to think about this in, in, in our own story, our own story, and particularly in our city, okay? Now, I, I want to tell you all this on the, on the front before I get into this. I love this place. I love this city. I was born here. I, I grew up most of my life here. Um, and, and I moved away for a while, and the Lord brought me back. And, and when he did, I love our city more than I ever have. I, I am telling you that because I'm fixing to be brutally honest about some things. This is my honest assessment of my, my, my city, the city that I love. We are racist. We are a racist city. We are a prejudiced city. However you want to say that, we are all of that. I have said for years since moving back to Macon, this is the most divided city I have ever experienced in my life. It is like, it, 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 is, it is almost humorous. Like if there is something for us to be divided over here in middle Georgia, we are going to be divided over it. And dadgummit, we're going to be angry about it. We, we, we are divided by the color of our skin. We are divided by our income. 
We, we, we like people or don't like people, hang out with people, don't hang out with people because of income. We're divided by the parts of town that, 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 that we live in. We're divided by the parts of town that we grew up in if you're a long-time Macon person. We're divided by neighborhoods. Now look, some of that is natural. Neighborhoods are divided, right? No, 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 not here. We take it to the extreme. We're, we're divided by school. This is, this, is, this is the only place that I know of when somebody asks you where you went to school, they're not asking where you went to college. They're asking where you went to high school. You know why? Because they judge you based on where you went to high school. You fit into a category if you went to this school or that school, right? We still do it today. Is it public school or private school? There's a divide. Which public school is it? There's a divide. Which private school is it? There's another divide. We're divided by churches. And I don't mean just by denominations that would naturally divide us somewhat over theology. I just mean like we are completely divided. One church doesn't like another church. We judge one another based on where you go to church. Oh, that church. Everything, everything, everything divides us. I can't think of a single thing, honestly, that we don't use as a divider in middle Georgia. Here's another great one for our city. We were listed at one time a few years ago um, by Forbes magazine as the fourth most impoverished city in the United States. Our school system in the state of Georgia ranked 169th out of 198 in 2022. Our crime rate overall is absolutely ridiculous, and our homicide rate is among the worst in the country. high rates of alcoholism and drug addiction. And we could go on and on and on. And we know these problems exist. Like I see you all nodding your head as I'm saying things. Like you know, m- m- most of you, especially if you've been here long, you know all of these things are, are, are true. And, 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 and here's some more truth for us. For, for the most part, th- these problems have not just persisted, but they have gotten worse and worse and worse over time. And you know what we do? You know what we have historically done? What we do is blame. Well, it's the teacher's fault. No, it's the parent's fault. No, it's the board's fault. We blame blame race. We blame racism. We blame race, and that goes both ways. It's their fault. It's their fault. If they would do this, if they would do that, we blame the police or the lack of police. We blame the politicians. We blame we move, right? We move. We move to a better neighborhood. We move to another county. We move to another city. Anything to get away from the problems. Vote, right? Why do we vote for someone? Because we think this person is going to be better than that other person that we're blaming for not fixing things or for making things wrong, right? They're they're, they're worse now, so we can't vote for them. We vote for this other politician. We've done this for decades, y'all. It has only gotten worse, and here we are today, and you know the things that I've said are only a drop in the bucket, and they're, they're true of our city. All of this, all of this, 
All of this being true, while Macon is a city that some have said has more churches per capita than any city in the United States besides Las Vegas. There's a church on every corner. I think that maybe this is so, at least in part, because we have been churchgoers with bright, shiny idols. We have been content to attend a service, even dedicate our children on Sunday, and then we rush home to our idols. And we spend the week with our idols, loving them and pursuing them, worshiping them, just like everyone else. Something different happened in Ephesus. So let me ask you some questions. What might change in your own life, in your life, if today you laid down those idols? What might change in your family if money were not an idol? What might be different in your marriage if kids weren't your God or, or comfort or security or politics or feeling loved or alcohol or drugs or the thousand other liars who promise you happiness and fulfillment that they will never deliver? Ephesus was a city of about 250,000 and God turned it upside down. And he did it when people heard the gospel and laid down their idols and followed Jesus. That's how the gospel changes culture. The gospel changes culture when we believe. When we believe. When we believe like them who Jesus is and what he's done for us. When we are captivated by the truth that the King of Kings has come to rescue us. That, that, that he has called us to a new family. That, that, that he has made us in his life, death, and resurrection. Not, not just forgiven to live however we want to. He's made us family. Family with one another. Family with him. God is our Father. He has made us sons and daughters of the king he has given us a new purpose in our life he's given us a new hope we we have a hope we have a hope and we know the truth that it's not our bank account we we have a hope and we know the greater hope is not our children we have something better the gospel changes culture when we believe that he is better. Better than anything that this world has to offer. That true joy and satisfaction is found in him and him alone. The gospel changes culture when it has changed us. When we lay down our idols and follow Jesus. So last question, what are the idols that you need to lay down this morning? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your goodness and your patience with us.
I thank you that your, your grace is not just a grace that saves us, but you are gracious to patiently pursue us, to patiently love us while we drift away and pursue idols that will never do what only you can do. Father, we confess. Help us. Thank you this morning for um, really is a gracious gift. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us, remind us. Remind us, remind us, remind us, remind us. Remind us of our idols. Remind us that you have offered us so much more than they ever will. In Jesus' name, amen.